Good morning. Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of James chapter 3. I apologize ahead of time. I do have a little respiratory thing going on, so I do have a cough drop in my mouth, and I might cough in the microphone at some point, so I apologize ahead of time if that happens. Uh, Open the books, uh, your Bibles, to James chapter 3. We're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 5. While you're finding that, I'll try to set the stage just a little bit. As you know, all throughout the book of James, James has been giving us ways to test our faith, to see if it's genuine. In chapter 1, James showed us that our, our, our genuine faith will be evident in the way that we handle trials and temptations and in the way that we obey the Word of God. Then in chapter 2, he demonstrated that our genuine faith would be evident in the way that we treat all people as equal at the foot of the cross, not showing partiality. And then also it would be evident in our good works, which testify of the living faith inside of us. And now in chapter 3, James is going to begin showing us how the things that come out of our mouths reveal whether our faith is genuine. I'm going to be covering the first five verses of James chapter 3 today, and then we'll be taking a four-week break to cover the Advent. And then after Christmas, we'll come back and finish up what James has to say about the tongue. So with that, let's read verses 1 through 5. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we, put, if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things." Some of you may remember this, but a few years ago when Marsh went out of business and Needlers took over, the pharmacy didn't transfer ownership. The pharmacy dissolved. It simply went away. And in Indiana law, there's apparently a quirk that says a grocery store without a pharmacy can't sell liquor. So when Marsh closed up shop, the the store was forced to clearance out all their liquor for like 40% off. And during this time when the liquor was being clearanced out, I went into the store to get groceries, and when I got to the checkout lane, the lady in front of me had a shopping cart that was literally filled to overflowing with nothing but alcohol at 40% off, just overflow. You know when you go to Sam's Club and you got to put your hand on top of the cart to keep things from falling out? It was kind of like that, but it was all liquor bottles, and she was unloading her cart onto the conveyor belt, and she wasn't saying anything to anybody. She was like completely focused on this task of unloading all these liquor bottles, and the cashier, since she wasn't paying attention, the cashier kind of looked at me and had, you know, the big-eyed look, like, that's a lot of alcohol. (laughs) And after a, a long period of time, the lady said, turned to the cashier and said, I have a pool, and went back to unloading her bottles. And you know that part of your brain that comes up with like witty things to say that you know you can't say, but you, you so desperately want to. I just, I wanted so bad to say, oh, I get it now. You're filling your pool with vodka. <laughs> but I didn't say it. I kept it bottled up. 
<laughs> Here's why I share that. That, that situation I, and that comment, I have a pool, kind of lacked context, right? All these years later, I can only assume that what she meant was she liked to have, she had a pool, she liked to have parties, she liked to serve drinks to her guests, a lot of drinks, and that's why she was stocking up, but I, I don't really know, because there's missing context. And that's kind of the problem with our passage this morning, is it's missing some important context. We just finished up James chapter 2, which was about the importance of works as being the fruit of salvation. And then James chapter 3 begins with, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, it's pretty obvious from these first two verses that the things James is going to be focusing on in this passage is the tongue, the words that come out of our mouths. It's not really hard to understand why he would begin this passage talking to teachers. Because in the grand scheme of things, who has the most potential to cause harm to the people of God with their words? People who are teaching the word of God, right? However, it seems like we've missed something important because James doesn't begin this passage by writing to teachers to be careful with their words. He doesn't warn them about their potential to do harm. He says it'd be better if you weren't a teacher, or at least that's how it seems to us, that he's discouraging people from even becoming a teacher. And it seems out of left field, like there's no real reason why he would say that. But on the other hand, we have to assume that that was not the case for the people to whom James was writing. Since he didn't give context, we have to assume that they had the context because of, they were living in a world where it just made sense. It would be like if James was writing to us in 2021 and he wrote to us, My brethren, let not masks and vaccines cause divisions among you. That would make sense to us, right? Because that's the context we're living in right now. It's part of our daily lives. But 2,000 years from now, somebody reading that wouldn't have that context. It would seem like to them that they had missed out on something. So what's the context we're missing? Why does James suddenly issue this warning about not many becoming teachers? Well, let's start with a question. In America today, what professions would you say are held in the highest of esteem? What positions do people aspire to? I looked this up, and at the top of the list, based on a nationwide survey, here's what we found. Doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and airline pilots. Those are the professionals that Americans hold in the highest of esteem. But in James' day, the professionals that were held in the highest of esteem were rabbis or teachers. What I've discovered by consulting several commentaries is that there's a nearly universal belief that in the congregations James was writing to, there were an overabundance of people aspiring to the, the office of teacher. And not just any kind of teacher. This isn't a warning not to teach algebra or language or something. It's specific to teaching the Word of God. And we know this because the Greek word for teacher is, that's used in this passage is didaskalos. And it's also used of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Both Jesus and Nicodemus were didaskalos, or men who taught about the things of God. 
So I said, as I said, apparently there were a lot of people that were aspiring to that kind of position in the congregations to which James is writing. So they're living in that context where many men, maybe probably unqualified men, are aspiring to the office of didaskalos, not because they were called of God, but simply because they wanted to be in positions of prestige. They wanted to be held in high esteem. And James issues this warning because many of these men had apparently not considered the implications of being a teacher, namely that they would be held to a stricter judgment by God for the things that would come out of their mouths. So he says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let not many of you become teachers. I think I also need to point something else out in here, that, that something that I think James is not saying When he says, let not many of you become teachers, he's not saying it's a bad thing to be a teacher or to even desire to be a teacher. In fact, if we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes these words. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The office of overseer is a, a pastor or an elder in a church, someone who, among other things, teaches the Word of God. And Paul says, if a man has a desire to be an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And I stress this because I don't think James is discouraging people from desiring to be a teacher or from even being a teacher in the church. The aspiration is good. The office of teacher is good. What he's saying is that if someone possesses that desire to lead and to teach in their church, they need to be sober-minded about that decision, about that desire, and their motivation for that desire. Because teaching the Word of God requires a lot of dedication and a lot of preparation. Requires the teacher to study, often for many hours. Requires the teacher to consult with people who are further along in their faith, in their walk with Christ to verify that their understanding of the scriptures is correct, requires the teacher to be sure that the words coming from his or her mouth are in line with sound doctrine. In short, what James is saying is that those who desire to teach need to be sure that their motivation for that is that they've been called of God to do it for the purpose of glorifying God and not just because they want to be held in high esteem or to hold a position of prestige. He's warning them that to teach the Word of God with the wrong motivation is kind of missing the point. It puts the one teaching in peril. They will incur a stricter judgment. The purpose of teaching the Word of God is to point people to God so that God will be glorified and not to bring attention to the teacher. And so he puts the exclamation point at the end of that sentence by reminding them that they'll be, they will incur a stricter judgment for the sins of the tongue, which we are all prone to commit. Just as an aside here, I think I'd point out that that word all in that verse is an important word because it makes it obvious that this passage of Scripture, the broader passage, is not just addressed to teachers, but it's addressed to all Christians. We all struggle with this. We all have a potential to sin with our tongues. 
And as followers of Christ, there's a degree to which we're all teachers, right? The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore we, all of us, are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's addressed to, that's all of us. We in that passage is all of us. Or how about what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We could look at a bunch more passages that would point us to the same conclusion. All Christians are representatives or ambassadors for Christ. And as such, we all need to have control of our tongues. But there's a reason James begins this passage talking to didascalos, those who teach the things of God in a formal setting, and then expands the, the discussion to all followers of Christ. Imagine for a moment, and this shouldn't be too hard, someone in a formal position of teaching the things of God, a pastor or a church leader, who's in that position for the wrong reasons, whose desire to be in that position is to hold a position of prestige or to be personally held in high esteem. And now imagine what might happen when this teacher comes across a passage of scripture that teaches something that the world, the culture he lives in, would find offensive. Can you think of anything like that? Can you think of things in the word of God that a pastor might be called upon to teach that the world would find offensive? I can think of a lot of those things. What do you think would be the inclination of a teacher whose deepest motivation of being in that position is to be held in high esteem? to hold a position of prestige? What would his inclination be when he comes to a passage of Scripture that would be unpopular or offensive to the culture, maybe even to people sitting out in his own congregation? Would his inclination be to spend hours upon hours studying the Word of God to grasp the, the true, deepest meaning of the passage and the implications? Would it be to understand how this difficult unpopular passage of scripture actually reveals the glory of God and then communicate that well in his teaching? Would it be to put in time to consult other mature, doctrinally sound believers or highly respected and orthodox commentaries and, and then preach that word, even if that, pump, that understanding that he gains from studying still leads him to the conclusion that this is not going to be popular? Would his inclination be to boldly teach the difficult passage and challenge his congregation that God's word is to be obeyed even when it's hard, even when it's unpopular? Probably none of that, right? Probably none of that. His natural inclination is going to be compromise or avoidance because revealing God's glory and leading people to know and understand God more deeply are not his deepest motivation in being in that position. His deepest motivation is to be personally held in high esteem, to be popular. And in compromising or avoiding difficult or unpopular passages, he's either going to be A, leading his flock astray, or B, not accurately handling the word of truth and leading his flock to have a superficial understanding of who God really is. 
We can see that happening in our world today, can't we? Do we know church leaders who are compromising or avoiding truth? Not necessarily teaching false things, just not teaching hard things for the sake of popularity. We can think of that. It's not new. It was happening in James' day, too. And sometimes in today's world, churches being led by those kind of leaders are like mega churches. Thousands of people in attendance. Why is that? I think the Apostle Paul gives us that answer in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he writes, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire and will turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. That time is here. It's been here since James' day. There are people that don't want to hear truth, right? But you see, the thing is, false or incomplete teaching may lead to popularity, but I sure wouldn't want to be that teacher standing before the Lord because we will incur a stricter judgment. So with that, we can now understand the context for James' warning. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. And the application for us is this. If being a leader or a teacher is something you aspire to, that is a fine work you desire to do. That is a good thing. But don't rush in. Study, prepare, consult with more mature believers, examine your own heart, and most importantly, pray. Ask God to make it clear whether that is a role he is calling you to. Make sense? All right. Now James begins to turn his attention to the body of the church at large, all believers. But he, he makes this transition in a really interesting way. When he's issuing this warning to teachers about incurring a stricter judgment, he doesn't exclude himself. James is a teacher, like a really good one, right? We've been talking about this since we started this book, just how practical it is. 2,000 years later, we're reading the words of James, and they're really practical. They apply to our lives. He's a good teacher. He was the brother of Jesus. He had firsthand intimate knowledge of who Jesus was. He had grown up living life with Jesus. And maybe this doesn't have any application, I don't know, but, but I think it does. Do you think James and Jesus like played games together when they were growing up? Like, can you play hide-and-seek with Jesus? Like, doesn't he always know where you're at? Can you play kickball? Did they play kickball? Was Jesus ever on the losing team? Did he kick a home run every time? Or they were carpenters, right? They were taught to be a carpenter by their father. When they were learning to do a dovetail joint, did Jesus get it right the very first time? Was it perfect? Did Joseph ever say to the other boys, why can't you be more like Jesus? I don't know the answer to these questions. But James did. He grew up with Jesus. They were brothers. He had observed Jesus. And he came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God and now became an author of a book of Scripture, a letter that would literally appear in the canon of Scripture. And here he is warning that those who teach would incur a stricter judgment. So what does he say? 
Does he say, let not many of you become teachers because you will incur a stricter judgment? It's not what he says, is it? He says, we will incur a stricter judgment. He includes himself. And verse 2 tells us why. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. See, what James realized is that even though he knew that he had been called to the office of teacher, to the role of teacher, even though his whole life experience had been preparing him for that role, and even though his writing was literally inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he was not immune to stumbling with his words. Because we all stumble in many ways. We are all human with a sin nature. Specifically, we have a special propensity for sinning with our words. And in doing so, all Christians have the potential of undermining our witness for Christ. Hopefully we can agree on this point. God's word is clear that when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we become new creations, right? He gives us new life and a new heart. But the struggle against sin remains. And if we don't control our tongues, all of us, not just teachers, but all of us as followers of Christ, have the ability to reflect poorly on the one who has saved our souls. Our tongues have the power to undermine everything we say we stand for as followers of Jesus Christ. If we claim to know Christ, yet we're known for being gossips, or we're known for having outbursts of anger, or we're known for using foul language, or we're known for being a complainer, or any sin of the tongue, we undermine our ability to represent Jesus well. So James begins to expand on this thought. He begins with teachers, but then he broadens his instructions to all followers of Christ because we all represent the family of God. What he says is, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. That's, a, that's an unusual wording. It's an interesting statement. And in understanding it, I think the very first thing we have to do is understand what he means by perfect man. And then the second thing we need to figure out is the connection between controlling the tongue and controlling the, the whole body. So let's begin with the term perfect man. What does that mean? And I want to point out that what James is saying is not that it's possible for a man to be perfect like Jesus is perfect. That really wouldn't even make sense because he just finished saying we all stumble in many ways. As long as our souls reside in these bodies of flesh, we will never be perfect in the way Jesus was perfect. We will continue to stumble. But what I believe James is saying is that the degree to which we control our tongues is a reflection of our maturity in Christ, the perfect one. Since chapter 1, James has been giving us these tests or evidences of true faith. What he's saying here is that as we mature in our faith in Christ, we will demonstrate that maturity by better reflecting the perfect one. As we grow in Christ, we will grow in his likeness. That's an evidence of true living faith. 
And one of the ways we will grow in his likeness is by controlling our tongues the way Jesus controlled his. Not long ago, we studied the book of 1 Peter. And in chapter 2 of that book, Peter penned these words. For you, Christians, have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see, Jesus was able to control his tongue even in the most extreme of circumstances, even when it would have been really easy for him to sin. What James is saying is that as we grow and mature in our faith in Christ, we will better reflect the perfect one in this area of tongue control. So notice what comes next then. James says if we can control the tongue, we can control the whole body as well. So what's the connection between the tongue and the whole body? There we go. He gives us two illustrations to help us make sense of this concept. The first is that of a horse with a bit in its mouth. Yeah, can we go one more? Yeah, there we go. And the second is an illustration of a huge ship whose entire course of direction is steered by a very small rudder. If you don't still have your Bibles open, the verses are up there. I think the clearest way to make understanding of both of these illustrations is kind of to, to flip them around, to, to look at them in reverse. Let's start with the horse. What would happen if any of us jumped on the back of a horse without a bit in its mouth? We'd have no control, right? We would be at the mercy of the horse. It would take us wherever it wanted to go. More than, more than likely, it would have an objective to get us off of its back, causing damage to our own personal bodies. Now think about the ship. What would happen if we took off sailing in a ship that didn't have a rudder? Well, again, we'd have no control, right? And we'd either end up lost at sea or shipwrecked. And in both cases, I think this is exactly what James is trying to point out to us about the lack of control. Do you know anyone who has no control of their tongue? Maybe it's a person who gossips incessantly, someone who gets angry and spews venomous words. Maybe it's a person that has an opinion about everything and they want you to know that if your opinion is different than theirs, you're not very smart. Maybe it's a person who lies or someone who tries to dominate and control with threatening or demeaning language. Could be a lot of different scenarios, right? But here's the thing we need to see. The entire direction of that person's life is altered by not having control of their tongue. Their relationships are harmed. Their family is harmed. Their reputation is harmed. The way people in the community interact with them or even think of them is negatively affected. Their ability to be productive employees is negatively affected. Their entire course of their life is impacted by this lack of control. Their tongue sets the course of their life. 
which is generally chaotic and lost, right? The negative impact of not controlling this little piece of muscle we call the tongue is easy to see. But, you know, even though I've preached through this passage a couple other times, there's something else here that I don't think I've ever really fully understood until I studied it out this time. I've thought about this long and hard. I really think it's true that the easiest way in all the world for us to sin is with our mouths. Would you agree? Literally in a split second, any one of us can have a thought go through our minds which immediately produces sinful speech. There's no other way we can sin that could happen so rapidly and so frequently. The tongue can produce an instant expression of a sinful thought or a sinful heart. This shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So I'll say it again. I believe it's true. The easiest way in all the world for us to sin is with our mouths. Because in a split second, we can have a thought that comes through our mouth and produces sinful speech. But here's the thing I don't think I've ever fully grasped before. Because the easiest way in the world to sin is with our words, and because controlling the tongue is such a difficult thing to do, if, under power of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to control our tongues, there is no other sin which will be too difficult for us to control. And this is what James means when he says, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. If we can control our tongues, as difficult as that is, it's so difficult to do, but if we can control our tongues, there is no other sin which will be too difficult for us to control. You know what that says to me? That says if I really want to know if I have genuine living faith, and if I really want to be a better reflection of who Christ is to the world around me, I ought to be in fervent prayer to God to help me learn to be in control of my mouth. It doesn't get any more practical than that. Just focus on one thing. Focus on controlling our tongues. And if the Holy Spirit gets control of the most volatile and the most destructive member of our bodies, one that boasts of great things, the rest of our sin will be easy to control in comparison. So as I close, I just want to say this. I don't think any of us need reminders of the damage that our tongues can do. We, we all know our personal propensities for sinning with our tongue, right? What I want us to focus on as we leave this place today is that the opposite is also true. Our tongues, under control of the Holy Spirit, can do so much good. They can bring peace. They can bring encouragement. They can express love and kindness. They can give comfort, they can deliver wisdom, and they can offer praise and thanksgiving. May all of us, as the people of God, work out our salvation with fear and trembling by, by speaking these kinds of words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredibly practical book of scripture. I know we've said that so many times, but it is so true. There's, there's just so much here that's so easy for us to apply.
might be hard to do, but mentally we can understand the importance of it. And so, Father, I pray for all of us to be those kind of believers who leave here today determined and and praying that your spirit would guide us to be the kind of people who speak words of wisdom and kindness and goodness and Lord, that we offer praise and thanksgiving as often as possible. Lord, help us to be people who are in control of our tongues. Help us to represent you well in the world around us by the way we speak. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.